0: brand new sermon series we're starting today is called A Christian in Babylon. Uh, the text that we're going to start with is Daniel 1, 1-21. So I'll read the text for us, and then we'll talk about it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put in the treasure a house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpanaz, King or excuse me, chief, of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to do this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of God. So for the rest of this calendar year, basically up till right before Christmas, we're going to be studying through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And I've entitled this series, A Christian in Babylon. Um, now, if you're up on your history, you realize that those terms are anachronistic. They don't exist at the same time. If you're a student of history, you know Babylon was an empire that had reached its height in about the 6th or 7th century B.C., And the term Christian doesn't show up in history until a couple decades after Jesus of Nazareth lives on earth. And so to put these two terms together in a historical sense does not make sense. However, it totally makes sense in a theological way. See, the Old Testament believers, those who were looking forward to the coming Messiah, they have fundamentally the same faith as you or I do. While they don't know all of the details of what happened in Jesus' life, They had the prophecies that said God would send a savior, his own Messiah, his anointed one, to be the savior of the world. And so in that sense, they believe fundamentally the same thing you do. You're just looking at it from the past, and they were looking into the future. And so this has led many theologians to call those believers who came before Jesus Old Testament Christians, because, well, Christ, Christian, is the same word in Hebrew as Meshach or Messiah. We believe the same thing. And therefore, we can say Daniel was a Christian, just like you or I are. And Babylon became more in the imagination of the Christian church than just an empire that existed in the 6th or 7th century BC. Babylon became prototypical for any society that was anti-Christian. A place where Christianity did not rule in any sort of theonymous way. You can see this probably most obviously in the New Testament authors who talk about the Roman Empire as Babylon in their writing. But that tradition has continued throughout Christian history, even up to our present day. And so a Christian in Babylon is really saying this. This is real history. Like, this really happened in the 5th and 6th century, or excuse me, 6th and 7th century BC in a real empire that really existed. In fact, Daniel is meticulous about giving us dates for things in his writings. So much so that we know all the events of Daniel's book right down to the year and in many cases down to the exact day of the year that these things happened. But also, that this real, true historical narrative has huge implications for any Christian living in an anti-Christian society. Which I'm going to prove to you why I believe we live in a society much like Babylon even today. But for the sake of argument, just let me assert that for now. So, why is this series worth the price of your attention? Because it is going to give you super practical ways to live in light of the gospel in the world that you live in right now. So, three things that I want to do today. First of all, I want to set us in our historical context. I want to make sure we understand the history of what's happening, so we understand this is real, true history. Then I secondly want to show you how I can make the comparison of Babylon in the 6th or 7th century to today's world that we live in, especially in the West. And then third, we're going to just work through the text and see how Daniel resisted that anti-Christian society that he lived in. So if you have notes, you're taking notes, those are the three points on your notes sheet and encourage you to follow along there. First, let's get our historical context Um, And I think to do this, we probably need to get a running start, like go all the way back to kind of the beginning of God's chosen people. Um, Abraham was given the promise that God was going to make a great nation through him in about the year 2000 BC. Uh, Abraham then had his son Isaac, Isaac had his son Jacob, Jacob had his 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph, who, if you remember the end of the book of Genesis, went into Egypt as a slave, but eventually became second in command in Egypt and helped them through a famine. Unfortunately, the pharaoh uh, that came after the pharaoh who was in charge when Joseph rose to power did not know Joseph, did not care about Joseph, and so he enslaved God's people in Egypt. Uh, This is the story of the book of Exodus, which eventually leads to Moses leading them out of slavery in Egypt about the year 1450 B.C. You remember the story, they go out through the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness for a while, they conquer the Promised Land, and then there's the Time of the Judges, which if you remember that book, is a, a crazy time in their history, until King David, the boy who slayed the giant, became the greatest king in uh, the history of Israel. He united this new kingdom in the Promised Land under his rule, and that was about the year 1000 BC. This didn't last very long, though. David's son, Solomon, came to power after David, and during Solomon's reign, the kingdom divided. It divided into a northern kingdom that retained the name Israel and a southern kingdom which took the name Judah, even though it wasn't only the tribe of Judah, it was also part of the tribe of Benjamin. These two kingdoms both eventually gave up worship of the true God, uh, but it happened faster in that northern kingdom. So much so that by the year 722, God allows the northern kingdom to be completely wiped off the face of the map by the Assyrian empire. They never come back again. The same thing happens to the southern kingdom of Judah, um, although slightly differently. In 586, the southern kingdom also falls to this empire, Babylon, that we're talking about today. Um, But they don't fall completely to be wiped off the face of the map. They're sent into exile in Babylon and eventually come back to the promised land for another couple hundred years until Jesus comes. So this is the history of your people, your people. Um, You might say, well, I'm not Jewish you're closer to them by faith than you are by blood. These are your people, this is their history. And the place where we're picking up the history is right before the Southern Kingdom falls. Uh, The text tells us that it's the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah. Uh, Jehoiakim ruled uh, and started his rule in the year 608 BC. And so we know that this was 605 BC when these events happened. And the, what, what kind of happened here was uh, Nebuchadnezzar came as a warlord conquering the area of Syria-Palestine and took Israel Judah excuse me, with him as he did this. He didn't have any intention particularly to pick on Judah. He just kind of was taking over land upon land and, well, he conquered Judah in the process. Uh, When he was doing this, Nebuchadnezzar was the crown prince. The emperor of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar, but he had taken ill and had sent his son off on these military campaigns. Soon after uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah, Nebuchadnezzar dies. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to ascend to the throne of Babylon. So he goes back in September of 605 BC to take the throne. And then one of his first acts is to Babylonianize all the people that he's conquered. He Babylonianizes them. In other words, he wants to make an empire where these nations exist that he conquered. He doesn't want to particularly rule them himself because that seems like too much work, but he wants them all to be under his umbrella of rule. He wanted to create an empire of vassal states, all of which were ultimately loyal to Babylon, even though they retained some of their own ethnic and cultural identity. And he had a strategy for this, a three-part strategy for um, Babylonianizing the people that he conquered. Uh, Verse two of the text tells tells us that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure chest of his God. So the first thing that he does is he rules the king. He rules the king. He takes Jehoiakim, brings him to Babylon, and turns him into a vassal king. Uh, the idea here was that he wanted Jehoiakim to go back and be the ruler where he was in Judah, but he wanted him to be loyal to Babylon and to pay tribute to Babylon. And so we find this actually, he brings Jehoiakim to Babylonia, but then send sends him back to Judah and Jehoiakim actually rules in Judah for 10 years as a vassal state of Babylonia. The reason to do this of course is to say, my politics are better than your politics, is how we might say it, right? Uh, my kingdom is stronger than your kingdom. So in a sense, he's trying to turn off the cultural identity of the Jews at this time. The second thing he does is he takes those articles from the temple and puts them in the treasury of his God. In other words, he insults their God. Now, in this culture, uh, in all the cultures really at this time, your religious identity and your cultural identity were very closely tied. In our country, that's not true. You can be Canadian and be any number of religions. But in their society, if you were Jewish, you followed the Jewish gods. If you were uh, Babylonian, you followed the Babylonian gods and so on. And so what what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is he's trying to show my gods are better than your gods, which would have eviscerated the cultural identity of these people. There's a third step that he's doing is he tries to Babylonianize these Jews, um, and that's to assimilate their youth assimilate their youth. Uh, The text says it like this, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And here's the part where he assimilates. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. He assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. So he brings these youth of the Jewish nation into Babylonian schools. He makes them eat Babylonian food, he teaches them Babylonian literature, he teaches them Babylonian language and educates them in all the ways of Babylonia. And the idea here is that these young men would not only be the greatest of their generation and grow up knowing all things about Babylonia and be a little bit sympathetic to Babylonia themselves, but then they would go back to their own nation, sympathetic to Babylonia, and say, you know, these guys who conquered us, they aren't all that bad. They're super smart, and they have really good food, and they're super wealthy. I mean, we, we could kind of follow them. Like, that would be okay, right? He assimilates the youth. And that's where we meet the main characters of the book of Daniel. We meet Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Of four youths that most of the commentators would say would be in their very early teenage years, probably about 13 or 14, when all of this happened. And the Bible tells us that they got new names when they went to Babylon. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So this is the history. This is where we are in history. We are going to follow the story of these four men as they navigate being in this culture that wants them to stop being worshipers of the true God. That wants them to become Babylonian. Now the second point I wanted to bring out, the second point on your notes sheet, is to try to help us understand how that experience that they were going through is parallel to what we experience today. To do that, first of all, we have to understand some things historically about Babylon. This isn't in the text, but this is just common knowledge of historians about Babylon. Uh, Babylon was a successful nation. I mean, obviously, they are conquering nations all around them. They are becoming an empire. Um, But if you would look at the city of Babylon, the capital city of the empire, you would see a city second to none in the ancient world. Uh, Most scholars will say it was the largest city that had ever existed in the world's history up to this point. It was the first city to top 200,000 people in population. If you would have gone to the city, you would have seen neatly paved roads, tall buildings, statues, artwork, and even uh, Nebuchadnezzar's hanging gardens, which were one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So it was a very successful city. It was a place you wanted to be. It was also, of course, rich because of this. The tribute that they were collecting from all the nations that they had conquered funded all of the things that they could possibly want in the world. Third, it was multicultural. Turns out the Jews weren't the first nation that got conquered and brought into Babylonia and assimilated into the culture. And so if you went to Babylonia, you would see a whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of different places all living together in this amazing city. And then fourth, you would see that they were highly educated. Uh, Two pieces of evidence on this. First of all, you might know the term Hammurabi's Code. Hammurabi's Code comes from the Babylonian Empire. Hammurabi was one of the first emperors of Babylon. The first and maybe most ancient law code or ethics code that we have uh, was made by these people. And you have the library of Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal was an Assyrian emperor, but they were assimilated into Babylon. And Babylon took all of the learning of the Assyrians and brought it into their learning. Hence, if you were going to be a Babylonian, you were going to be highly educated. You knew everything about everything that there was to know because you had access to that knowledge in a way that nobody else in the world did. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Like, kind of like the world we live in? Successful, rich, multicultural, and highly educated? It is. But it had a dark side. Uh, Babylon was also sexually immoral, murderous, materialist, and politically religious. First of all, they were sexually immoral. Um, It was very common in their society to have one partner, which we might call monogamy today, but also to be sexually active with any number of other partners that you wanted to be sexually active with. Homosexuality was common, transgenderism was common, contraceptive methods that I could, well, most delicately say were sexual acts that weren't intercourse were very common. Abortion was common, infanticide was common, Uh, many of the same things that we see today. While it might be culturally normal for people to kind of have their one special person, it's not uncommon for you to go on to the next person if you find them more attractive or more successful, or at least to have an addiction to pornography, which is essentially the same thing. And you know about how homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion and all these things are part of our culture today. It's the same world. That murderous spirit that said that some life is not valuable, that was part of Babylon. They were also materialists. While they would call themselves religious and they would worship the gods of the Babylonians, they were functionally materialist. What I mean by that is they would perfunctory, perfunctor, perfunctorily re, uh, worship the gods, but they would solve all problems as if they were following the science. Right? They would follow naturalistic ex- explanations for all the things that they saw rather than saying this is because of some transcendent divine being who's acting in our world. They had a sense of their being, almighty power, but they didn't live like it. Sound familiar? And then finally, they were politically religious. If there was a deity to be worshipped in their society, it was the political rulers of the day. Political rulers would put their name on buildings that they built. They would put their names on the money. They would um, make sure that everyone even worshipped them sometimes. We see this later in the book when King Darius says that all people should worship him for a time. This is what gets Daniel thrown in the lion's den. Sound familiar? It's the same world that we live in. A world that looks beautiful on the outside, has all access to all things that we could possibly want, and yet has this dark underbelly. But I think what clinches helping us understand that this is the same world that we live in is seeing how they treated Christians. So we see this in the text, right? How were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah treated by the Babylonians? Um, The first thing that they did is they re-educated them re-educated them. they put them into Babylonian schools because they said, if we put them into Babylonian schools then they'll learn the things that the Babylonians become sympathetic to those things and eventually assimilate into Babylonian culture. This is the exact same way that our world treats our young people. They say, go to our schools because we have really good education, which is absolutely true, just like the Babylonians did. But there's also an undercurrent of godlessness in the education that comes from public universities and schools. And I've said that before, and people press back on me because they say, well, how else am I supposed to get an education? No kidding. Yeah, it's a really good education. Our our world offers really great education, but there are unintended, unintended consequences to that that we ought to be careful about and honest about. When our theological ancestors came to this country, we built our own schools because of this. We said, we're not going to educate our kids in other religions or other world schools We're going to educate them in our own schools because we fear this. So that was step one. Secondly, that was to re-identify them. Um, The the re-identification process looked like changing their names. Now, we don't change our names so much in our society, although the transgender movement is starting to show us a little picture of that, isn't it? Uh, For them, renaming a person was a huge deal because their names were not names in the same way we think of names, like my name is Caleb, that's just a set of sounds that identifies me. Uh, Their names were like short phrases that would identify them in regards to their culture or to their God. So uh, for example, you and I say Daniel, but Daniel is a name that actually means God is my judge. And so every time Daniel would introduce himself, he would say, God is my judge, would be the exact same as if my daughter Irene, whose name means peace with God, if she introduced herself every time to you by saying, hello, my name is peace with God. It changes things, right? It's not just a set of sounds, now it's an identity of who I am. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all had names that identified them with the true God. And yet the Babylonians changed those names and says, now your names are about worshiping Bel and Marduk and Nebo, the gods of the Babylonians. What's the practical value for us? Uh, our society is constantly trying to re-identify us. Right? How much of your culture is telling you, you know who you really are? Baptized into Christ. Your culture's not telling you that. It's telling you you are the sum total of how attractive you are, how successful you are, how many zeros there are at the end of your paycheck, how many buildings you own or cars you own or people know your name, how many followers you have on Facebook. Like any number of things, that's what it's telling you to identify yourself with. That's who you are. I mean, think about it. When you wake up in the morning, who do you identify yourself to be? The guy who needs to get to work? The girl who needs to take care of the kids? The man who's getting a little bit older and creaky and near death? The woman who is trying to make a name for herself, to make her parents proud? I mean, who do you think of yourself as? Your world is telling you everything else besides baptized into Christ. That's who you really are. The last thing then is to emasculate them. Um, this is really interesting. I never noticed this because I've only read this text in English, but studying it in Hebrew, you see something really interesting. Um, in verse 3, it says that Ashpenaz was the chief of the court officials. That word court officials is the Greek word, or excuse me, Hebrew word seresis, which means a eunuch, to somebody who has been castrated. Uh, this is very common in ancient uh politics and royalty, to have your court officials um, castrated. Part of the reason was to make sure that if there was a queen, you weren't going to have an affair and then have some biological claim to the throne, right? Um, But very common in this this era to emasculate your court officials. Uh, The next verse, though, makes it seem like they did the exact same things to these four men who were eventually going to be court officials for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, You can see that in the word handsome. It says they were supposed to look for young men without any physical defect and handsome. Um, the, The word there that's translated handsome means good looking, but it is a word that is exclusively used in the rest of the Old Testament for women. So good looking in a feminine sense. Kind of like the way we use the word beautiful today, right? We don't really ever talk about beautiful men, but we might talk about a beautiful woman, right? A word that's reserved for the good-lookingness of a woman. Um, That's the word that's here. And what this leads the commentators to say is that they were picking particularly men who had not hit puberty yet, so that when they emasculated them, when they castrated them, they would not be able to grow into their actual grown male selves, Now, why? What's the point of doing this? It's not just because it's uncomfortable and degrading. Um, It is actually for two really practical reasons. Uh, The first of those is that when you do that, you cut off a man's uh, supply of testosterone, which is going to grow him into the man who has natural male drive to be in charge of things and to be a little bit more violent in gaining control of those things. If you're um, a ruling power and you want the men under your control to not rebel, take away their testosterone because they become soft and passive and don't want to fight back. The second reason for this is, of course, procreation. This is just demographically true. Um, The culture who has the most babies ends up having the most power. And so if you wanna make sure that a culture is not going to gain power, you make sure that the best of them can't have babies. So you make sure that these men can't have babies. Now, what does this have to do with anything for us? Um, First of all, we have to be really honest that this is exactly happening in our society. Um, the transgender movement has made it possible in our schools, if a child believes that they do not, um, their gender does not match who they see themselves to be, they can go to a school counselor. That school counselor can give puberty blockers, hormone treatments, and get them into a stream to get a gender reassignment surgery without telling the parents. That's Ontario. That's not Babylon. But it's far more subtle than this. Um, I think functionally, our culture tries to emasculate men. We may not try to cut off any parts, but we're trying to cut off a nature. Our young men are being told that they're toxic, that they should shut up and listen to the women, that they're stupid. And so what do they do? They back off, go play video games, take that male drive and put it into a world that doesn't even really exist and success in that world. And let me be clear, this is not their fault. This is our fault. We've emasculated our men as a culture. And now we're all sad because bad things are happening and no one's standing up against it. You know why? Because we told all our men to stay out of it. You want, you want people who are going to rebel against evil authority have real men. Babylon doesn't want that. Babylon wants men who are passive, who will listen to do and do what they're told, not men who will stand up for what they know to be true. And so let me say this very clearly. Young men, we want you here. We want you to be men here. We don't want you to be passive. We don't want you to be soft. We want you to be gentle and kind, like the Bible teaches us. But gentle requires an ability to not be gentle. We need you to be strong, even though the world tells you not to be. Because you want to know why the world is falling apart and why the church is falling apart? We don't have strong men. That's why. And, men, you're forgiven. Like if you're realizing this is you right now, you're forgiven and you're loved by God and you're empowered to be this. And I bet to a woman, every woman here would say, we want you to be this. We want to encourage you in this. Please do it because Babylon doesn't want it, but God does. So after they do all these things, they they re-educate them, they redefine them, they emasculate them. Then finally, they make them comfortable. Right, you saw this in the text. It says they were assigned an amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now, if you understand the concept of the king's table, this was the best food, best drink that was possibly available in the culture at the time. They were given the best of the world. They were given the best education, the best food and drink. We find out later they have their own housing. They're not required to share housing with anybody else like slaves or like conquered peoples. I mean, they are given the best of everything. They are made super comfortable in this world where all this evil is happening and Babylon is trying to change their identity. And so this is the world that we live in too. A rich, successful, multicultural, highly educated society where evil is happening under the surface and what Babylon wants us to do more than anything else is to just ignore it and just go back to the wonderful comforts that we have in life. The amazing food and drink and experiences and entertainment and and housing and, and rides and everything that we can get at the tip of our fingers because we live in a first world nation. Now, I'm going to say this multiple times. None of those things are inherently bad. God has given us good things, but understand how Satan wants to use those things to pull us away from the truth of God. Brothers and sisters, we live in Babylon. Are you seeing this? Are you vibing with me? If not, I pray that you do. Because what Babylon wants you to do is not notice, to keep quiet, to stand back, to say, that's not my problem. But Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they did not. And we get to see an example of that right here in the text that we have before us for today. Um, I'm not going to read through the whole text again, but I'll just recount the narrative for you. Um, Daniel is given this portion of the food and drink from the king's table. And he says, I don't want to eat it because it's going to defile me probably two things he meant by that. First of all, there would have been meat that was uh, not part of the Jewish dietary restrictions from the Old Testament. So things like pork, for example, were not allowed in the Old Testament uh, Levitical codes. And so he was trying to avoid that. He wanted to follow God's word rather than what the government told him to do. Um, But secondarily, there also would have been meat that might have fit into the dietary restrictions, for example, like beef but it would have been sacrificed to pagan gods. And so he wanted to avoid that whole problem too, of being associated with any type of pagan worship. So he just says, can I not, please? (laughs) Can I not eat this food? Now the chief official says, "Ah, actually, I can't do that because I'm scared I'm gonna die for giving you this uh, exemption. So what Daniel does is he actually goes to the guard, the guy underneath the authority of the chief officer and asks him the same thing, but this time just for a test. For 10 days, can I just eat vegetables? Which, by the way, that word vegetables is not how we think of vegetables. Um, It's a word that means cultivated food. So like bread would be included in this because it comes ultimately from the ground, right? And I say this because I don't know if any of you remember this. Maybe some of you are a little bit older than me. There was like a fad for a while about like the Daniel diet, which is absolutely ridiculous and anti-scriptural and you should never buy that book. And if you have it, you should burn it. Um, But if you don't get that, that's fine. I think that was a fad for a while. But like, It totally gets the text wrong. But anyways, he he eats these vegetables um, for 10 days and so do the other guys and they come out looking way healthier, right? Which is obviously a miracle um, from God. And so we learn a couple things from this narrative. Um, First of all, we learn a big principle that I'm going to press on a number of times in this series and that's this, polite minimalist resistance, that's the first point in section three on your notes. Polite, minimalist resistance. This is the essence of how a Christian lives in an anti-Christian society. Polite, minimalist resistance. So we see the politeness, of course, that Daniel asks for permission to do the thing that he knows is true by God's word. If everyone had said no to him, would he have ultimately resisted? Probably. But he tries to go about it in the most polite way possible. He asks for permission to do these things. Um, he's also minimalist in his resistance. Like, he could have gone really big on this, right? He could have stood up in the Babylonian cafeteria and stomped his foot on the ground and said, how dare you make me eat this food that is unclean? This is an atrocity before God. Well, you know what he would have got. He would have got at least a target on his back, if not actually killed. So he doesn't do that. He takes minimalist resistance. What's the least amount of resistance I can, um, I can bring while still resisting, Right, uh, he doesn't just say, "Well, you know, it's not a big deal. We've never been in the exile before. We don't know how to handle it. Um, this is a unique situation." He Doesn't say any of that. He says, "No, God's word says this. I'm going to follow it, regardless of what anyone tells me to do. But I'm going to do it in a polite and minimalist way." That's the principle we learn. A couple of practical applications of this. First, um, the the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. You don't have to know that, but this is the concept that. Christians conceive of authority as a reverse of how the world conceives of authority. So in the world, authority comes from the top down. The people with the most authority, they have the most power. Okay, so we might say an example of this would be like if our federal government gives us a mandate and our local government says the opposite, we generally think of the federal government as having more power. Uh, A Christian conception of authority is flipped. We actually think power resides more in those who are closest to the people under their authority rather than those highest in the hierarchy structure. So using that exact same example, federal government gives a mandate and our local government says, no, we're going to do the opposite. We would follow our local government because they are the lesser magistrate. Now you're thinking, okay, that's probably never going to happen and likely not. But here's a really practical application of it. If you're a father... And I don't just mean like men who have biological children in our congregation. I'm talking all of you men. Um, God has made you the primary authority figure over your families and over this congregation. I am a little bit higher than that, which means I have less power even though I have more authority. In other words, if I say something and it is not true to God's word and you don't correct it, you are held accountable for my false teaching. You understand that? Which means you ought to know what the scripture says. And you ought to be watching out and making sure that I am teaching the people under your authority what is proper for God's word. Again, I want to encourage you in that. I want to open the scriptures for you and I want to show you opportunities that you can have to do that. But that's your responsibility. A second example of this is probably on the more minimalist idea of resistance. Um, So, for example, uh, 2020, uh, the government of Ontario and Canada tells us to stop worshiping. Um, Now, we're not required by God's word to absolutely worship every single Sunday, and so we said, well, let's take it with a wait-and-see approach. We'll follow their guidance for a little while until we figure out what this whole pandemic thing is going to look like. Um, But I I know I've repented about this to some of you, but I think we did not come back fast enough on that uh, because God's word says we do have to worship, and we do have to worship in person, and we do have to worship with the Lord's Supper. And I don't think we pressed hard enough on that, and so I repent of that to you. I should have handled it differently. But here's where the minimalist piece comes in. Um, if we were to do that, we would do it in the most minimal way possible. You understand, we wouldn't make a big deal of it. We wouldn't post it on a website. We wouldn't put signs out on the side of the road, forget that government, we're just rebelling against it. Like, we're not going to do that because our point is not to resist. Our point is to follow God. And so we want to resist in the most minimal way possible. This is the principle And we ought to all meditate on this. What does polite, minimalist resistance look like in our society? What are the things that our culture is telling us to do that are contrary to God's word that we are going to politely but minimally resist? There's a second piece of this, though, and that's the idea of identity. Um, So I already told you that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah get new names, right? The Babylonians give them these new names to identify with the worship of their gods. The names are recorded for us in Scripture as Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's something really interesting, though, about these names. Um, These names are not typical Babylonian names. They seem to be slight corruptions of Babylonian names. So an example of this is later in the book of Daniel, we'll meet an emperor of the Babylonians called Belshazzar. Belshazzar is a common Babylonian name. But Belteshazzar is not. Belteshazzar is a name that doesn't show up anywhere else. And so what it seems is happening is that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah take their Babylonian names but purposely corrupt them in their own speech and writing. So kind of a, an example would be like if we suddenly got like conquered by radical Muslims and they made us all take Muslim names um, and my name was supposed to be Mohammed, if I started saying, my name is Modamid, right? Very close, but I'm not giving them the satisfaction of letting them actually change my name. So it seems that Daniel's actual name given to him by the Babylonians was Belshazzar, but he chooses to say his name and write his name, Belteshazzar. What does this have to do with anything? (laughs) Um, It's for us to understand that you can live in Babylon. You're going to have to live in Babylon. You can't escape Babylon, but you can also remember who you are in Babylon. the world that they were going to live in, they knew they weren't going to get out of anytime soon. They knew they had to make the best of it. They They knew they needed to work within the culture, but they also wanted to never forget who they were. And this is a huge principle also for us as we go through this book, to understand that we cannot escape Babylon, but we can also make sure we remember who we are. On the one hand, we can't escape Babylon. You're not going to be able to completely rid yourself of every bad influence that this Babylon that we live in has, You're going to have to participate in our totally unjust economy. You're going to have to take in information from people who are lying to you. You're going to have to have conversation with sinful people who do not understand the way of God. You're just going to have to live here. But you're going to remember who you are. You're gonna work for the good of the city. This is what Jeremiah wrote by God's word to the people who were in this exile. He said, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. And also seek the peace and prosperity to the city to which I have called you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. Like it says, like, participate, be part of this. And that's exactly what Daniel did, right? He participated in government. He was a government official. He was in Babylon, but he never forgot who he was in Babylon. So what does this look like for you? No matter what you're doing, no matter what your vocation, remember who you are. Remember that you are baptized into Christ. And before you are anything else, you are that before the world wants you to gain more wealth or more status or more influence or more um, productivity, you are already a finished product in Jesus. You don't have to. And know that. And then live for the prosperity of your city. You can't escape Babylon, but you can remember who you are. Uh, Which leads me to the last point, and this is the good news of this text. It's the very last verse. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Isn't that awesome? You guys don't get it, right? <laughs> That's okay. It does seem like an innocuous verse, but it's such a beautiful verse because of who King Cyrus is. King Cyrus was not the next ruler after Nebuchadnezzar. He was actually a number of rulers later. King Cyrus was the one who made the decree that God's people could go back to the promised land after their exile. And what's really interesting about Cyrus is he is the only non-Jew in the Bible who gets the term Messiah. He is God's Messiah. To do what? To take God's people out of Babylon and into the promised land. And so what is this text telling us? Daniel was in Babylon. He was there his whole life until the Messiah came and brought him back to the promised land. And that's your promise too. You're going to be here 70, 80 years if you have the strength. You're not going to get out until the Messiah comes back and brings you to the promised land. He frees you from this world that hates you into a world full of God's love. And so remember who you are and live like it. And maybe if I can give you one practical thing just to think about on the way home, have a conversation about this. What's gonna be your resistance? What's gonna be your polite minimalist resistance where you, like Daniel, changed his name from Belshazzar to Belteshazzar? What's your little thing gonna be where you say, I'm not part of this? I live here, I love it, I will pray for it, I will work for it, but I'm not part of it. Is it going to be how you handle your time? How you handle your money? How you raise your family? The entertainment that you take in? The devices that you use? Is it going to be food or drink, just like it was for Daniel? I'm not going to let myself enjoy all the things of this world and make myself feel like everything is okay when it's really not. Are you not going to hide Are you going to stand up? What will it be for you? It doesn't have to be something big. It's minimalist resistance. But it's what Christians do when we live in Babylon. Let's pray about that. Jesus, we're in a tough spot. Like all the Christians who have gone before us, we live in a society that ultimately does not worship you or give you glory. And so we ask that you work in our hearts a worship and trust in you. Above all things, we are yours before any, any other identity that the world would want to give us, help us to live in that and to resist in the places where the world tells us to disobey your word, to not excuse ourselves, but to dig deep into your Holy spirit and the power that he gives us by your word to trust that though we will be here, eventually the Messiah will come and he will bring us out of this place. We ask for all that in your name. Amen.